Welcome to episode 22 of the Language Neuroscience Podcast. I'm Stephen Wilson. Today's episode is very different, but I think you'll find it really interesting. My guest today is Olivia Leo. Olivia is not a professor. She is the executive director of the Rotary Club of Nashville. I met Olivia in the clinic last year after she had a brain tumor discovered that was located in the left posterior temporal region. This called for pre-surgical language mapping with functional MRI. The goal of pre-surgical language mapping is to determine the location of critical language areas with respect to the intended resection site. We wanted to confirm first that language was localized to the left hemisphere, and that being the case, we wanted to determine how close critical language areas were to the tumor. We found that like most people, Olivia was left hemisphere dominant for language, and we found that her main temporal lobe language region, Wernicke's area, if you will, was located just anterior to the tumor. We also observed her visual word form area immediately adjacent to the ventral border of the tumor, and two other language activations abutting other parts of it. In short, the resection site was surrounded by language areas which we believed needed to be preserved, implying a need to minimize the resection margin all around the tumor. Based on the imaging findings, Olivia's surgeon, Dr. Reed Thompson, decided to perform an awake craniotomy in which Olivia was asked to speak throughout the surgery. While imaging findings provide a useful roadmap, there is nothing that can take the place of direct speech and language testing during the surgical procedure to ensure that speech and language functions are preserved. Dr. Thompson carefully resected the tumor from within and succeeded in entirely preserving Olivia's speech and language function, as you're about to hear. I thought it would be fascinating to listen to Olivia tell her story and to get a very different perspective on language and the brain. We'll talk more about this in the episode, but Olivia also started a fund through Vanderbilt to raise money for other people undergoing surgery for brain cancer. If, when you hear her story, you might want to support this fund, I've linked the donation page in the show notes and on the podcast website. Okay, let's get to it. Hi, Olivia. How are you? Hi, great. How are you? I'm good. Thanks so much for coming in today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, this is like kind of um, a new thing for me because this is actually the first podcast episode that I've ever recorded in person. <laughs> right. When did you start? A couple During the pandemic? Um, yeah, it was a pandemic baby. Um, early 2021. Um, I was kind of missing all of those interactions with my colleagues sure. um, that we used to have in conferences and just coming to work um, day by day. Sure. And uh, so I had this idea. I was listening to a lot of podcasts myself. So about things that are not the scientific study of language in the brain. <laughs> <laughs> I listen to a lot of those. <laughs> yeah. What, what do you listen to? Oh, I don't know. I was listening to Up First on the way here. Um, I don't know. Um, more, I will say a little lighter subjects than neuroscience. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was listening to a, that, that kind of stuff. And it just kind of occurred to me that like, you know, this might be something that we could try to like kind of have a new way of communicating people sure. among people in my field that do this kind of research. Right. So it's been pretty fun, but it's been all on Zoom so far. Um, right. And this is the first, and you, and you live in Nashville. So, right. You know, it's helpful. I live 10 minutes away. <laughs> yeah. You actually live really close to me. Um, so, um, we met last year um, when you were having some medical adventures. <laughs> yes, an adventure is a good word for last year. <laughs> and, and so a I terrifying thought, it, adventure. yeah, I thought it'd be really interesting for people that work on language in the brain um, to kind of hear from a different side, um, mm -hmm. you know, the story of somebody who um, had, you know, was impacted sure. by that. Sure. So, um, can you tell me, like, just what was the first thing that happened? Um, that you noticed last year? Yeah, sure. So Father's Day of 2021, it was June 20th. 
my husband had gone to play in a Father's Day golf tournament, and a friend called and said, hey, come out to Franklin, which is about 30 minutes from our house. Um, bring the boys. Let's go to the pool in their neighborhood. And so I went to a, a local grocery store in a parking garage <laughs> and came out of the parking garage and uh, couldn't see very well. And I have great vision. Um, and really, it felt like kind of that flash photography, how you have spots in your eyes. Uh-huh. And then as I, I should have gone home, but I did not. And I kept driving to Franklin. And by the end of the drive, I couldn't see the sides of the road. Uh-huh. And I felt a little drunk. And I just kept thinking, what is going on? I've never had anything happen like this before. And I get there. And I tell my friend, and, you know, it's getting a little better by this point. So we go to the pool, and my boys had just learned to swim last summer. And you may know, that's a really stressful summer when they get out of the puddle jumper life jacket phase and into the just jumping into the pool and barely swimming phase. Yeah, yeah. Mine mine are kind of about there right now, too, actually. Right, right. So, you know, you've got to really pay attention. So I'm in the pool with them. And uh, my hand goes numb, Uh like very, very numb. And I'm like, I have a little bit of a headache and I think, gosh, what is going on? And of course, well, that goes away, but I'm, you know, we're in the pool for a couple of hours. We go back to their house. Our husbands get home from playing golf and the uh, vision happens again. The vision changes. Mm -hmm. So would you call that like tunnel vision? No, it's like peripheral vision. Like everything over here on the sides or just super blurry. Okay, so your peripheral vision was kind of gone. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah, all of a sudden. And then it came back, and then a, like maybe 30 minutes later, my hand went numb again. So there, at this point, we're like, okay, something is really going on. There's a cycle. Um, and you, we all did what you're not supposed to do, and we Googled it. <laughs> <laughs> Which in this case, I will say, Google was kinder. Usually it's like, you're going to die today, right? <laughs> and in this case, it said it's a migraine. And I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm having my first ever migraine. This is what it is. And we go home. It's Father's Day, so we give Robert gifts and you know, go to bed. I go to work the next day. And actually, I called my endocrinologist. I've had thyroid cancer um, in 2015. Uh-huh. And I've been on, you know, Synthroid forever. And they just changed the dosage. So I call them and I say, could these symptoms be a part of the dosage change? And she says, oh, absolutely not. Please go to the emergency room. And I was like, well, I'm not going to go to the emergency room, but okay. So I go to work and I run uh, the Rotary Club here. And, um, you know, there's 100 or 200 people in the room at this luncheon I'm in charge of. And all of a sudden I start sweating. And I'm like, okay, there is something happening in my body. I tell the president of my board, I tell my coworker, I'm like, I've got, I'm going to go to urgent care. Uh-huh. No, not going, <laughs> not going to the ER, but like you're going to step it like up. Like a and migraine. Go to, yeah, yeah. I'll, go to the, I'll go to urgent care. And they were so insistent that I drive to the emergency room. And I did. I left there. Um, I just kind of kept driving. I kept passing. I passed Vanderbilt. I passed some other hospitals in town. And I thought, I'll just go to this one by our house. Mm-hmm. So I end up at St. Thomas West. And I think 
Maybe it's not as busy of an emergency room. You know, I valeted my car. I have my laptop with me. I've dressed like for work. Yep. So <laughs> I didn't. I wasn't going to be the the first person they saw. Um, but anyway, I go in, and the emergency room doctor says, "You know, it does sound like a migraine, but let's do an MRI and some X-rays." Uh-huh. And I'm that like, was a good decision. Yeah. Right. I'm very thankful <laughs> for him and him taking me seriously because I did not. I was really, I felt like this was an over-exaggeration and mm-hmm. being kind of dramatic about this migraine. And um, so they did that. And I remember the MRI people pulling me out of the machine and saying, oh, we forgot that we need to do it with contrast too. And at the time I was like, okay, you know, let's, let's do it. And in hindsight, I know that they saw the of brain course. tumor, right? They would have seen <laughs> it like... Within seconds of putting sure. it in, like the very first scan that right. they did would have been like, whoa. But they were very calm Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and <laughs> played it off. They didn't let on. Right. So then I go back and it takes a while for him to, the doctor to come back in the room. And I was texting my husband and friends and saying, you know, they've forgotten about the migraine girl. You know, I felt like such an idiot for even going. And then he came back in and he has this sheet, right? This paper from the radiologist. And he reads it, and I, it was like a movie or something. Like, I didn't hear a word he said. Uh-huh. And I looked at him, I'm sure, with a very blank stare, and I said, I need you to read that again. And he did. And so it, so what, do you, what happened? Like, he started, you could sort of, at some level, you knew it was bad news, and then said, you sort of shut off? or He walked in and said, I have good news and bad news. Okay, the, you don't want to hear that. Right. And I feel like in this case, like, the bad news was pretty bad. And what was the good news? <laughs> the good news was that my heart was okay. And, I, you know, I, I didn't think there was anything wrong with my heart. Yeah. So, so good news, you, you live in a first world country right. and have a loving family. Bad news, you yeah. have a brain tumor. That's, right. that's not really a good news and bad news it situation. It felt like a, a really big, you know, spectrum there. So the bad news was bad. But they didn't say, they said, you know, we found something on your brain. It could be meningitis, encephalitis. It could be uh, MS or um, a brain tumor. So I don't know at this point. And I'm there by myself. And that was a really tough point because I had to call my husband, who's at home with our, at that time, I think they were three and five years old boys, mm-hmm. and tell him this terrible news over the phone and he has to kind of keep it together you know um, I call my parents and uh-huh. at this point I haven't told them anything about the symptoms or that I've gone to the emergency room right. so it was, it was a really cold this is just coming out of nowhere call. for them yeah right um, so I'm having to make these calls and that's when it really hit me like oh boy this is awful and I remember saying to the doctor well I can come back tomorrow and we can talk about this. And he said, no, you've got it. We're admitting you. What happened? He said, what happened to you may have been a seizure, mm-hmm. that vision changes and the numbness and all that. And you can't drive and you have to stay. Mm-hmm. And that's really when, I mean, things were going south really quickly right. at this point. <laughs> for you, me. You, you were still alone at that point? You yeah. Had- uh-huh. Yeah, for a while. And I called a friend because my husband was with the boys. We don't have any family members in town. Um, so he calls his parents. They're about two hours away. They jump in the car and come with him. And I'd called a friend who came 
and met me in the emergency room. Mm -hmm. And I stayed in the hospital for six days doing all kinds of testing, um, lumbar punctures, which I don't recommend. Right. (laughs) (laughs) At a low point. Um, I had a brain biopsy, um, you know, MRIs and CT scans and the works, Uh whole body scans, the whole thing. And got to go home after the biopsy. And then, let's see, that was a Saturday. On Wednesday, the neurosurgeon I was working with at that hospital called and said, it is a brain tumor. It's a low-grade glioma. And Mm -hmm. at that point, they don't know if it's a, I hope I can get these words right for this particular (laughs) audience. (laughs) Please forgive me. It's either the oligodendro something. Do you know the end of that Mm -hmm. word? I don't know. Or an astrocytoma. Uh And these are just brand new words for me at the time, right? I don't know anything about them. And you're terrified to Google. And he says, we were in the, you'll appreciate this, the swim lessons parking lot when we're getting this information. Uh Because we had taken our boys to swim lessons. And he calls during swim lessons. So my husband and I walk outside and get, you know, terrible news again. Because you were still hoping that it might be something yeah, less serious, right? And I mean, but they but they told you then that it was they thought it was low grade, right? Right. At that point, I mean, I think later they find out for sure that it's low grade. Right. I don't think they know for sure at that point. They right? don't, right? But they think it's probably low so grade. So it's not it's not the worst news, right? Yeah, I mean, it's it actually could be worse. Yeah, I mean, just to kind of fill it in for our listeners, like, I mean, it's it could have been worse in the sure. sense if it was high grade, that's. A lot worse than right. if it was low grade. <laughs> right. Um, and that, that's kind of like going to have, you know, a high grade tumor is one that's, you know, growing rapidly mm-hmm. and is, has a very high chance of recurrence. Right. Whereas a low grade one is growing more slowly and has much less chance of recurrence. Sure. But you probably don't have all of that context at the moment you're being told that you've got a brain tumor. Sure. <laughs> I don't know any of this. And, you know, I, and um, he, another thing he told us on that phone call in this parking lot is... You need, because of where it's located in your brain, which is the Wernicke's area. Wernicke's area, yeah. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> There's going to be a lot of that. Yeah, <laughs> correcting. <laughs> I'm, I'm just, it's all good. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. Um, you're going to need an awake craniotomy. Uh-huh. He already thought that, huh? The St. Thomas's. Yeah, surgeon. he said that on that phone call. And he, he suggested that I go to University of San Francisco to do it. Mm-hmm. U- University of California, San Francisco. Right, 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 right. Yep. And so that's what we knew at that point. And at the same time, I'm getting... So did he tell you why you needed an awake craniotomy? Yes. Um, because of where the tumor was located in my brain and because it's around and you know this because you mapped it, <laughs> um, all of the communication functions, this is how I understood it. All of my communications functions were kind of wrapped around the tumor. And there's also my ocular nerve was right in there somewhere. And it was just a tricky spot. Um, and to preserve my ability to speak and my communications abilities, the mm-hmm. safest way to do it was an awake craniotomy. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense yeah, to you? It makes perfect sense. And, okay. and did he tell you where it was located in the brain, like in terms of location? or? 
I could point to it. That's not helpful for your podcast. That's okay. Listeners. You can point to it and I'll fill in. It's right here, like right yep. above my left ear. So, yeah, so Olivia is pointing to her left posterior temporal lobe. That's it. That sounds right. Yep. Right. So that's what we know at this point. And at the same time, actually, when I was in the hospital at St. Thomas, I was getting people, the word was kind of getting out in my community about what was happening. And I got a, a few people texted or called and said, you really should go see Dr. Reed Thompson at Vanderbilt. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is all really new to us. And we don't know how do you just call the <laughs> Vanderbilt hotline or something. I don't know how you get into this. But luckily, before I worked at Rotary, I worked at the National Chamber of Commerce. Mm-hmm. And the CEO there found out and he called and said, what can I do? And, you know, we thought about it for a little bit. And I thought, well, he probably knows a lot of people at Vanderbilt. Yeah, he probably does. <laughs> and so he called Dr. Wright Pinson, who, if you're not from here, is, a, I don't know, a president or CEO or something of Vanderbilt Medical Center. And he called Dr. Thompson, who was on vacation, and we were able to get in quickly and you know, that was that. So, so I met Dr. Thompson on a Wednesday and he orders a functional MRI, which is how I met you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it was going to be on a Saturday. I don't know if you remember coming in on a Saturday for that, but, um, one quick story there. And we are just, um, full of anxiety and fear and stress. And, you know, this is a pretty rough, few weeks. Yeah, of course. <laughs> of learning a lot of things and, and getting acclimated into this world of neurosurgery and brain tumors that we have not, I mean, we were at zero. I was at, I, I didn't know much about it at all. Yeah, you wouldn't. Um, maybe I've watched Grey's Anatomy a yeah. few times or something, but so um, our plan is to come and see you and have this functional MRI. And my understanding is it's going to map the brain, and I'm going to let you explain no, what no. you actually did. <laughs> I'm going to let you explain it. Um, what I understand is going to happen is that you are going to map my communication functions in my brain. Mm-hmm. When I'm, What I thought would happen is talking or reading or whatever, and you were going to map the blood flow around the tumor to see how much of the tumor they could extract. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yes. Oh, it's so weird to explain what someone does with somebody that's really good at it to them. (laughs) (laughs) And to be like, well, this is my best guess. Um, Uh, Yeah, but we we talked about it. Yeah, that's what I'll go into. It was a very interesting day for me. But before that, so that was a Wednesday. He ordered it. Friday, I get a call from, you know, there are people in the MRI department here that say your insurance hasn't approve this yet. I don't know if you know this part. It's always such a hassle with insurance for these. Oh man, I could, if you have an insurance podcast, I'd love to (laughs) spend a few hours talking about that. But so they call and say, your insurance hasn't approved it yet. You're going to need to sign something that says you will pay for this out of pocket. Oh, you wouldn't want to do that. And right. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, how much, how much will a functional MRI run you? Uh And of course they don't know. It's definitely like at least five grand. Right. And we had no idea. Like, is it $20,000? I mean, it probably is. Who knows? So I say, we'll just postpone it. 
Oh, no. Couldn't right. do that. And this is Friday at 5 o'clock or something. And um, we were actually at our pediatrician's office talking about how to tell our children what was happening. So we were in the middle of that, and the MRI place is calling, and I postponed or canceled it, I guess, effectively. And Dr. Thompson, the neurosurgeon, mm-hmm. <laughs> calls immediately after that. And he is really fired up. I don't, I'm, you may know him. Yep. He's got a lot of energy. And <laughs> he says, Olivia, did you cancel that MRI? And I said, I did. I sure did. <laughs> they, you know, I told him the story about the insurance situation. He said, I have been on the phone with your insurance company for an hour and a half. And I've gone round and round with them. They've hung up on me. I've gone a peer to peer review and they've approved it. He said, will you go? And I said, yeah, I'll go. I just don't want to pay, you know, a million dollars or whatever. Who knows what it could cost? So anyway, I end up here on a Saturday Uh (laughs) with you. Yeah, I don't don't remember whether or not I knew about that or not. Like, I always check on the day of to to see if the person's, like, bailed. Because, like, you know, people Mm -hmm. do have reasons for canceling. Sure. So I usually just check before I, like, come in just to see if it's, like, still actually happening. So I might not have known. Well, but I think the, there was about a 10-minute period where it dropped off and came back on. Yeah, I vaguely remember. I think I might have been in the loop on it. I don't remember. Yeah, that... <laughs> whatever. I could go on for hours about insurance and that whole... Uh-huh. I'd love to have the time and energy to burn that industry down and build it <laughs> <laughs> for actual people in mind. But so anyway, we come. I come here. I come through the maze to find your office, which is wild. Uh That's like step one of if your brain works, if you can find this office. And um, it's a really long MRI. I remember it being like two hours or more. Yeah, you were in there for a while. Because they do not, we did not just functional, but then they do like a pretty comprehensive structural scan as well. Yeah, yeah, it was Uh a long visit. So... Do you remember the things we did in the scanner? I, I describe it to people as like a video game. Uh-huh. <laughs> I remember, so you're in this MRI tube. I'm sure that's what you call it. And <laughs> uh, there's a mirror and you can see this screen behind you. And I remember going through different sets of task or games or whatever you call it mm-hmm. where one was like do these two lines of words and numbers match mm-hmm. is that right yep okay you're gonna have to <laughs> verify <laughs> this information um it seems like there was one where you would you would complete a sentence mm-hmm. maybe yep um remind me i don't know do you remember yeah, the that, others i mean of course were, but that's that's like totally adequate right yeah and so if our listeners are interested in reading more about the tasks we do i we actually have a publication on it and i'll link it with a podcast so so it people felt can like up. pretty sci-fi to me because you i was just thinking my answers yeah you didn't have to do anything apart from press some buttons you didn't, right. you didn't talk at all right which is it was it was pretty wild that was a pretty wild day and a long day <laughs> i was exhausted at the end but so at the end of that, you send those results back to Dr. Thompson, and he has this map of all of these different communications functions and where and how they touch this tumor. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, exactly. We make we, we kind of show where the language areas are in relation to the tumor. Right. And I, I have it here. Oh, wow. Okay. 
Which no, I think felt you've like seen it before, right? It was pretty close. Like they were all kind of right around. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so yeah, you had four. There were four distinct language activations that were immediately adjacent to the tumor. Sure. So, yeah, I think that uh, I don't know if Dr. Thompson or somebody else told me this, but if this if this tumor were in any other part of the brain, you could go in and cut it out and cut more of your brain out, and it's not a big deal. But because of where it was, and because it's so close to these important parts of my brain, that's that's really what called for an awake craniotomy. Yeah. So so you so he brought you back in to talk about the mm-hmm. what the findings of the functional MRI, right? Right. And he confirmed. He said. Did he you, Did he show it to you? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. It yeah. It's wild. It was a. It felt very daunting because it confirmed that. You know, we did need, I did need an awake craniotomy. Mm-hmm. And this is why. I also went and saw a neuro ophthalmologist uh-huh. um, because of the vision changes that I had. And I think the ocular nerve was right around in there too. Um, he confirmed I had great vision, by the way, even though I had not been to the eye doctor since. I think the Lions Club came to kindergarten. Uh-huh. Well, you know, you, I don't know if you get credit for that. I mean, it's not like dentistry where you like you have to brush your teeth. Like, if, you have, if you have good vision, you have good vision. I'm really proud, though. Let me have that one. Yeah. Well, you know what? I had really, really great vision until about a few years ago, and then it just started like rapidly oh, declining. I know this is fleeting. I know. Yeah. I'm I was, hanging on to it. I was always like so proud that I could see further than everybody else. And now I've just like, now I've got like four different pairs of glasses for different situations. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I know that's coming to my life soon. I know. I know. Yeah. So that's funny. I do brag about it and you're right. <laughs> there's, no, there's no bragging rights. Okay. So it wasn't like a, an ophthalmology issue. Your visual fields were actually intact. Yeah. Yep. Um, and did Dr. Thompson tell you about risks of the surgery at that time? Yes. And that was, you know, having an awake craniotomy felt very scary to me. I don't know if you would like uh, that news. It's, uh, no, I don't think I would. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty, um, you know, I was, the surgery itself felt really daunting and scary and, and you know, that was that part. But the really, the... I never felt like in fear for my life that I wouldn't make it through the surgery or whatever. The part that I was most afraid of was waking up and not being able to communicate. Mm -hmm. And that was a real concern. And did he tell you that was a possibility? Yeah. Even with the mapping that we had done? Sure. Mm -hmm. And and mainly for... Short term and swelling and that sort of thing okay. from the surgery. Yes, I, so not long term loss of communication skills, maybe, but some some version of a short term loss of speech or um, understanding what you're saying, or you know. And because I have small children, that was terrifying. And terrifying to think like you're going to come out of surgery and maybe you're not going to be able to tell nurses or your family what mm-hmm. you need. Yeah. It's it's like it's actually really common. Yeah. That even if things are going to be fine in the long run, that the, the days immediately after one of these surgeries, people mm-hmm. do have aphasia. You know, they're unable to speak or Ugh. comprehend. And I, 
I really love to talk. It's my favorite. That's like the only. <laughs> when you're a professional communicator, right? right? That's I mean, all. The only way I think I've ever been paid for it is just kind of like talking and building relationships with people. And um, the so, loss okay. of that felt really scary. So you were, but you were only really worried. At that point, you were only worried about it in a short term sense. You thought you were confident that it I was going to be so. okay at that point? Yeah, I think so. Earlier, you'd probably had more, more fear about the consequences of this tumor? Sure, sure. I think once we learned that it wasn't the worst kind of tumor, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I do, I've heard from all the people that it it may come back. Um, there's a possibility of that. So, you know, I've kind of put that out of my mind. But it's not an immediate, that's not an immediate concern. But going into surgery, I had plans for... You know, I talked to my husband and my mom and dad about if I wake up and I'm not able to communicate or if my speech is really slurred or if I can't talk to you, don't take me home to the boys. Uh Uh-huh. That would really freak them out, right? Sure. And really, you know, that was my biggest concern the whole time is like, let's make sure that they, we had talked to the pediatrician about what to say to them about the surgery and all of that. So. I had planned to go to a friend's house or take me to a friend's house unless they put me in some sort of rehab facility or whatever. So we go through the surgery. You want to go? Absolutely. Um, <laughs> it was on August 24th last uh-huh. year, so almost a year ago. And um, we come in to Vanderbilt, and I, I don't, it feels like a dream at this point, but the, the anesthesiologist called me the night before and kind of gave me the rundown of how the surgery would go. Uh-huh. And that was really, <laughs> I was feeling okay about it until I heard that. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, what you were going to feel and hear and all this stuff. And she was right. And I'm glad she called because, you know, if you think you're not supposed to hear things and you do, then you could freak out. Uh-huh. Um but I come in in the morning, they take me back, I'm awake going into the OR. So in your in the news article about this, um, it mentions that you were told to like have a playlist oh, of music. Right? So you, you were supposed to like have songs that you were going to listen to oh, at yeah. some point in the surgery? I did. And I spent so much time thinking about what do you listen to during a wake craniotomy? Uh-huh. You know, it's not really like the Rolling Stones moment of your life. You don't want something really (laughs) upbeat or you don't want to dance or, you know, whatever. Uh, So I was thinking about kind of slower, calming things that I like. Um, So I would, during the phase between getting diagnosed and having the surgery was about two months. And I would wake up early, early in the morning because I just couldn't sleep well and would go for a walk. And that's really when I, once they said, you know, you can pick the music for your, uh-huh. the soundtrack for <laughs> the your soundtrack for your brain surgery. Yeah. Um, I spent a lot of time thinking about that. So I would go through, I'm like, okay, this is it. And I think I'd rethink it. And I've really, it was. So what, of, so what are some of the tracks that were going to be, uh, um, you know, the backdrop to your craniotomy? Yeah. Like John Prine. Mm-hmm. Any particular a, song? He's a local guy. Yeah. But he also passed away in this hospital. Uh, he, he died from COVID. Yeah, he was one of the first people. It was very sad. Sure, it was heartbreaking. And I think he was here. And I thought, well, that may not be the best idea, right? But what John Prine song would you have listened um, to? I love um, Long Monday or oh, yeah. Clay Pigeons. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, all of his songs are kind of, 
you know, they're not rock and roll songs. They're yeah. kind of a slow, calm voice that he had. Yeah, I love both those songs. Yeah. I will link them on the podcast. Oh, good. In the podcast notes so that people can appreciate <laughs> I, John I, Prine, who we lost right. to COVID. He's fantastic. Um, I thought about, I love this guy, Taj Mahal, is a blues singer. Uh-huh. And... He had to be very specific with his songs, though, because some of them are a little upbeat and whatever. But uh, the Lumineers have a lot of songs that are kind of that, mm-hmm. um, kind of that same vibe. So, you know, I kind of thought through all this and I said, <laughs> you know, I want, let's do the Lumineers. And, <laughs> and then I kind of freaked out and I thought, I'd really rather listen to whatever Dr. Thompson likes, right? Like, okay. He's more the star of this show. Like he needs to be in, he's the one that needs to be in a good mood more than me. I'm not doing a whole lot in this scenario. So he picks the Eagles, mm-hmm. which, you know, just kind of ruined the Eagles for me now. <laughs> Are you a fan of the Big Lebowski by any chance? Yeah, yeah. Where he says like, I hate the fucking Eagles. <laughs> That's right. So Dr. Thompson picks the Eagles. I like the Eagles. Yeah, they're good. And really, I wasn't. I could hear it, but not. There's a lot happening, you know. And I feel like there's 20 people in this room, and there's you know people are moving around a lot. And so we go into the OR. I'm awake. They put me under a bit for the opening for the surgery, um, and then I'm back awake again, and I'm pretty awake. You know, I okay. thought it so, would be kind of sleepy, dreamy, but okay. It, but they put that you get knocked out first, right? Yes. There's there's a period in which you're. Out. I would say like colonoscopy, under. Okay, I haven't had one of those. <laughs> Me yet. either, but I think that, <laughs> that's kind of what people have said. Like you're, it's like. You, okay, you're not fully out, huh? No, it's not deep, full okay. anesthesia. Okay, and, that, and, that, and that's the period when they're actually cutting a piece of your skull off, right? right? They're making a they're making a little door in your skull. <laughs> Right. And then they open that up and, you know, probably pretty big in your case. Like, yeah. so just kind of flap a skull. Right. They, they remove it. And during that... Me, I'm sorry. You just sweat over I'm here. sorry. That's okay. <laughs> during that whole... But, so during that whole phase, you're not totally out, but you're... No. But out you're, enough where I don't remember that part. Okay. Which is helpful. Uh, then they wake me up and I'm pretty awake. I remember this whole phase of the surgery Mm -hmm. and there's an anesthesiologist that is sitting like a foot from my face probably. And he is, um, starts asking me questions. What's your name? You know, what year is it? All who's the president, whatever. And then he has a picture book and it's like cow and house and like really simple pictures, you know, Mm -hmm. to see if I can name those. And my understanding of the surgery is that Dr. Thompson is putting probes into different parts of the brain mm-hmm. while I'm doing this to make sure that, to see if he can go further or to make sure that my communications functions are preserved. Exactly. So I think that's what's happening. <laughs> yeah. So you're naming and you're naming pictures and he's yeah. probably applying electrical stimulation mm-hmm. to the next part that's due to be sure. removed. To see whether that interferes with your ability to name those pictures. And if it doesn't, then he's going to go ahead and extend the surgery. Sure, sure. So we do that. We're talking, you know, just having, they're trying to keep me having a conversation uh, with the guy. And then my favorite is they asked if I wanted to call my husband. 
Wow. <laughs> you can't say no to that. <laughs> That's not in the medical record. <laughs> <laughs> so I remember asking Dr. Thompson, I was like, can we FaceTime? He was like, absolutely not. Because, <laughs> you know, I don't, I can't see what's happening back here. And he's like, you can call him. So we call him. And they had been calling him throughout the surgery just to say she's doing fine or whatever. And we talked for a couple of minutes and, you know, it's like, I'll see you in a little while. And that was that really, you know, we just kept, ta- they just wanted me to keep talking or uh-huh. to keep naming objects in the room or in the picture book. And then I would liken the surgery to like a dental procedure, how it felt. Uh-huh. Like, you know, if they're working on your tooth. Yeah, you can't really feel the pain, but you know that you there's should be pressure. feeling the pain. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> there's some pressure. There's some, like, movement or whatever. That's how it felt when they were resecting the tumor. Like, uh-huh. I could feel, you know, the surgery happening. I could uh-huh. hear it. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a nightmare. I can't believe that I'm able to say this. How, uh, long, how long did it take, would you say, I the, the reception part? it was only part? like two and a half hours. The whole surgery or the yeah, reception part? the whole surgery. Oh, wow. That's, not, that's pretty quick. Right. Two, maybe three or so, but mm-hmm. pretty fast. Um, and then I, they put me back under again to close it. Uh-huh. And then I was awake again in the OR. And I remember leaving, and everybody seemed like they were in such a good mood. And I thought, well, that must have gone well. <laughs> <laughs> like high-fiving. And so know. there were no moments in it when you had any language disturbance? I don't think so. Okay. They just yeah. kind of stayed clear the whole right. time. Right. And so I'm awake, going back to the neuro ICU. And this is during, this is August of 2021. Oh, yeah. And there was a big uh, spike of the Delta yeah, variant. Yeah, Delta, that, I was going to say. Delta. Like the hospital was putting out, you know, really scary messages all the time. Like they started, they were canceling surgeries. I think if I would have waited two more weeks, it may have been postponed. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Uh, and so in the neuro ICU, there is a COVID patient on each wall of mine. I can hear them. I can see the nurses putting on all the PPE stuff. And so that was frightening too. And leading up to it, I was, I pulled my boys out of school for the week before we all quarantined. All right. Yeah. You don't want to have to cancel because you got COVID. Oh, absolutely not. Uh-huh. <laughs> I was so anxious about it that postponing or canceling felt like a no-go. I can't, I can't survive that. Uh-huh. Yeah, no, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so that was a really scary time. Um, but anyway, in the neuro ICU, a speech pathologist, and that may not be her official title, but... It probably is. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh, came in, and I remember her asking to name all of the words that start with A that are not proper nouns. Mm-hmm. And maybe there's another qualifier in there, too. Um, you know, in a certain time frame. And then B, and then C, and... I did pretty well, but I think one of the letters I didn't do as well, and I was so mad. I was so competitive that I was like, oh, can she come back? I've thought of all the words now. Uh-huh. Um, so we did that. We did an MRI at like 2 o'clock in the morning, uh-huh. of course. And, you know, you work in a hospital. You may be more familiar with this, but hospitals are wild. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at 2 a.m., it is just ha- a happening place. Yeah. 
Well, well the only time I've been in hospital at two in the morning um, was when my kids were being born. Sure, yeah. Maybe you don't hang around at those hours. <laughs> but, you know, it's just like it, it's 24-7 around yeah. here. And they wheel me over to get the MRI. And the guy beside me on the gurney waiting on his MRI was handcuffed to his bed. <laughs> and I was like, this is the wildest place I've ever been. Yeah. And, you know, I've just had this awake craniotomy and it feels like it's the weirdest day of my life, I hope. And then, you know, so I stay in the hospital until about noon the next day after the surgery. And Dr. Thompson comes down and says, you look pretty good. You seem pretty good. Do you want to go home? And because of, I mean, the COVID was rampant in mm-hmm. here. And they yeah. what I understood was that Vanderbilt at first had all the COVID cases kind of in one area. It really burned out the staff and the nurses and, you know, people taking care of them. So they had just recently moved them around to different parts of the hospital. Right. So we went home in 30 hours. Wow. That's really quick. But I guess it makes sense, right? I mean, if you've got COVID patients all around you, probably much safer to be I was ready to get out home. of there. I also, so I recovered more quickly from this surgery than I did my brain biopsy with general anesthesia. Uh-huh. I felt better after. All right. I walked my kids into school two days later. I went to their t-ball game. That mm-hmm. was a Tuesday. I went to my little one's first t-ball game on Saturday. So the recovery was pretty and, good. And you never really had any language or other symptoms apart from not being that good at naming words starting with A. <laughs> Start with B. One time. Uh, <laughs> you know, the only, I notice sometimes that words that are very common and that I've always known, sometimes it's hard to recall them. Mm-hmm. But every time I tell someone this, they say, oh, that happens to me all the time. Yeah. So I don't know if it's just, you know, a common thing. I also have noticed, um, I don't know the name for this kind of word, but like there, there, and there, or, you know, whatever those are called. Uh-huh. Um, I have to think harder about that now. When you're writing? Uh-huh. Homophones? Yeah, homophones. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was very good at it, and I was very judgmental before, if you got it wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and I've, I've kind of pulled back off of that. Okay. So there's a teensy impact on your language I think system. so. I mean, it's not surprising, right? I mean, like you had sure. this giant tumor that was basically right there. Right. And then I had, so I had the, sur- the surgery in August, end of August. End of September, I started five and a half weeks of radiation. Uh-huh. So I went every weekday and they, you know, burned the cells in my brain. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Make sure it doesn't recur. Sure. So I did that. And then in December of 21, I started uh, six weeks of um, the oral chemo Timidar, uh-huh. Timidar pills. Um, so I ended that in May of 22. And now the I'm done with treatment, the treatment phase. And I do MRIs every three months just to make sure that it doesn't recur yeah sure and how long do do you think you'll be doing that for um my understanding is i'll do scans the rest of my life Mm -hmm. it may be it'll spread out eventually yeah um but i think the longest i would go is six months or a year between them right and are you comfortable with getting in the mri these days sure i mean it's not it's not super fun they could be quieter i don't understand maybe you can explain this to me a, why do they have to be so loud? Uh-huh. And B, 
Why are the noises so annoying? <laughs> Why can't they be more consistent? Like a nice rhythm. It's just like the worst noises you can think of. Yeah. And then the next phase is the they're worse than that. Yeah. Well, you know, you need an MRI physicist to explain why it has to be that way. It's horrible. They the, could. They don't, they don't give you good enough air protection. No, somebody on the spot listening to this, he could probably fix this problem. Uh, no, I, I don't know if it's because they're doing my brain. I just get those little. Oh, you should bring in your own earplugs. Like, find some earplugs that really work for you. And they'll they'll let me do that. I would think so. I mean, I certainly would. I did find out recently that. You can't wear like leggings or workout pants because they'll catch on fire. Yeah, that's, I mean, I don't, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> I mean, sometimes they can be really cautious. I mean, it, it, all, it all depends, like in the research context versus the clinical context. Like in research, like we put people in the scanner just wearing whatever they came in, you know. Yeah. But for clinic, they get you into a gown and like they're a bit like OCD about it. Sure. But yeah. There's probably a reason for I that. I don't know. I, I, I'm very comfortable with MRIs. Like, you know, I've been doing MRI for 20 years. I, I, I get in the scanner all the time. Do you like, really? I mean, not a, less so these days, but mm-hmm. like I used to. Like when I was a grad student, I'd be in there like once a week, you know, trying something out. Yeah. It, it just kind of is my happy place. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I would not describe it as my happy place. I don't mind it. Um. And now they're, you know, they take 20 or 30 minutes. Right, yeah. Yours was... Yeah, that was long. It was a really... I was really tired after that one. But, no, I don't mind it. Um, What I would rather not ever happen again is a lumbar puncture. All right. That was the worst of all the... If you... if You know, I had to line up all the tests I've had. Uh Worse than the awake craniotomy? Oh, I don't know about that. But, (laughs) number two. Okay. (laughs) Um, Yeah, okay. So, you're doing well. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you got out, you decided that you would try and do something for other people that find themselves in this situation. Can you tell, yeah. me, more, can you tell me more about that? Sure. So it felt like, um, one, we have had this enormous response from our community that have helped my family during this process. People have come out of the woodwork. We have had... We have never felt so loved and supported, and I'll just never get over that, right? I mean, people did the meal train thing, and we didn't cook for like four or five months. I had some people that are in on the board of directors where I work who hired a personal chef who cooked for us for two weeks after surgery. Uh Um, People brought everything we needed for class projects or whatever. The two days before surgery, a friend called and said come outside and I came outside and there were probably 40 or 50 people in our front yard and they were all singing all of my favorite songs. And it was like this fun, joyous party. And it just went on and on and on. You know, people were helping us in really big ways and really small ways. And I have a friend who would Venmo me like $5 every time I had radiation to go get a coffee after or, you oh, know, just am- amazing. Um, I could, I feel like I could write a book about how to help people. And it's just all the ways that we've been helped, but that that's part of it. And then if you walk into this uh, cancer center here enough times, and I walked in a lot of times, mm-hmm. um, you start to notice that there are people that are going through something just as horrible. You don't know what people are going through there, but, yeah. um, that may not have that community that is able to support them as ours did us. Yeah. 
So one day in particular, I walked in and a man came and sat beside me and he had a Dollar General bag and it looked like all of his belongings were in it. Uh And he's there at the cancer center. Uh And you think like, wow, this is, this is really stressful and this is life changing and it's expensive and it's, you know, all of the things. And it's happening to people who already needed a lot of community support that they may not have been giving, getting. So I started thinking about what we could do. I also wanted to celebrate kind of the one year anniversary of just getting through this horrible year uh-huh. <laughs> and doing something really silly and fun and whatever. So all of these ideas came together and I thought we ended up with having a karaoke party, uh-huh. uh, <laughs> which, you know, we're in Nashville and there's, uh, and what we learned was that everybody in Nashville is a really good singer. But um, I met with Vanderbilt and I just said, how can we help people who are going through this? You know, what do they need? What can we do? And Jenny Streams is in the development department here and she was so wonderful. And she helped me develop this brain cancer patients assistance fund. And so how this fund will work is if someone comes in and they say to, you know, their oncologist or the radiologist or, or not the radio, radio, radiation oncologist or Dr. Thompson or whoever, and they indicate in some way, I'm not going to do this MRI or I'm not going to take this Timidar or whatever it is, or they get the impression that this is a really stressful financially, they will be able to use these funds and take care of their medical bills uh-huh. or lessen them or whatever they work out. Um so it was really motivating to me because I thought of how stressful it is because, um, you know, your medical bills, we have a, a place in our kitchen counter and it just, there was just a mountain of medical okay. bills at one point, <laughs> right? They just kept coming and kept coming and we were kind of waiting for insurance to kick in or not. And that's part of it, right? Like I was reading uh, this article, I wish I, I could, I can send it to you, but it was saying like how many cancer patients a big percentage of cancer patients fully drain their savings accounts yeah. or their education savings accounts, or they move out of their home and move in with a relative, or they get a second job while they have cancer mm-hmm. because it's so expensive. And, and even if you were covered, I mean, the co-pays could do that to you if you were... Oh, absolutely. If, if you were, uh, I walk into an MRI and sometimes the copay is $500. Wow. Which we are very fortunate to be able to pay, right? Uh-huh. But that might send someone back out the door. Absolutely. <laughs> $500? I have a friend who, when we did the six cycles of the Timidar um, chemotherapy pills, our insurance covered it. And we, they were, there was a $30 copay per cycle. Uh-huh. They have great insurance, too. And theirs was $3,000 per cycle. Wow. That's, you know... $18,000 in a less than six months. Yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> so you raised a lot of money through we the karaoke did. event? We had, first, we had a lot of fun. Uh-huh. Um, Dr. Thompson came, Dr. Merrill, who's on staff, who's a, a neuro-oncologist, was there. And um, we had this, this karaoke night, right? And you could challenge other people to sing songs and mm-hmm. all this stuff. Uh, but we raised it. I think around $38,000 right now for this fund. And, you know, I hope it continues to grow. And, 
you know, I don't think there's an end to the amount of money that's probably needed. No, probably. (laughs) (laughs) So if our listeners want to donate to this fund, can we we send them to our web? I would love that. Um, There's not a quick and easy (laughs) web page to say, but maybe we could link it. Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll link it in the podcast notes and I'll I'll read it out at the end of the uh, the episode. Yeah, great, great. It is. um, It's it's all run through Vanderbilt. So all of the donations go directly into this fund and can directly be used for patients. Um, I hope that, you know, I will continue every year to have some sort of fun party to, mm-hmm. what, to fund it. What did you um, personally sing at the karaoke oh. party? <laughs> so I forced my husband to sing this song, Shallow, with me. I don't know if you've heard it. It's uh, Lady Gaga uh-huh. and uh, Bradley Cooper. Uh-huh. Um, what, I, don't, I can't think of the movie name. A Star is Born. Uh-huh. And it was ridiculous and fun and... Probably the best I've ever sang. I will never sing it again. I'll say that. That was it. Uh-huh. <laughs> There's some like, divine intervention going on there. <laughs> uh-huh. Is there a recording of it? Uh, yes, there is. It will not be played on the podcast. But <laughs> I will say Dr. Thompson came and sang, my neurosurgeon, uh-huh. came and sang Take It Easy by the Eagles. I like that song a lot. Sure. I've you sa- do I've- if you have not heard it during your... Yeah, I've sung that a lot in the car. I gotta say. <laughs> it's a good one. <laughs> it's a good song. It to was sing. a great night, and yeah, I hope the fund continues to grow and to help as many people as we can. Because I think, you know, what I'd love to do in the future is just to have this big pot of money, and when someone is diagnosed with this, they can just, we well, just give them what they need, right? Because what I needed, um, of course, we had medical bills and such, but. Um, I've hired a therapist since then um, because it's, you know, it's stressful and taxing mentally Mm -hmm. and emotionally too. Um, a trainer to help me be in the best shape I could be to get ready for that surgery. Um, and then day to day, you know, our kids are still in daycare and I couldn't drive for four months or five months. Yeah. So So there's just so many costs, even aside from medical costs, right? right? Just these practicalities like this just so it's so involved. Right. To get a brain surgery. Sure. <laughs> well, I hope that people will consider donating to this fund. Yeah, that would be amazing. Um, great. So I, I kind of wanted to finish just by showing you this book that I have. It's like one of my favorite books. It's called Speech and Brain Mechanisms. Mm. It's written by this guy, Wilder Penfield, who basically like was the pioneer of this kind of surgery. Sure. And he's writing about like, I just want to read a little bit of it to the for the podcast. Like the, chap- the chapter on mapping the speech area is called forbidden territory (laughs) and it starts off like this is what he says he says 25 years ago we were embarking on the treatment of focal epilepsy by radical surgical excision of abnormal areas of the brain this was in the 30s he's writing this in the 50s in the beginning it was our practice to refuse radical operation upon the dominant hemisphere unless a lesion lay anteriorly in the frontal lobe or posteriorly in the occipital lobe like other neurosurgeons we feared that removal of cortex in other parts of this hemisphere would produce, would produce aphasia. The left temporal lobe and the frontocentroparietal areas were considered to be devoted to mechanisms of speech, and aphasia literature gave no clear guide as to just what might and what might not be removed with impunity. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of how it was, like, I guess... 70 years ago now right but this but this guy and you know the surgical field that he trained kind of learned how to operate in the language areas and be able to do stuff like 
like Dr. Thompson did with mm-hmm. with you and have you come here today and like talk with me like this. And I just, sure. I just think that's really cool. Yeah. You know, I'll, I'm super grateful for so many things during this. Dr. Thompson is one of them. Um, but I don't take for granted my ability to communicate. Um, because what, if you ever feel like it's in danger, right, that you may not be able to talk or you may not be able to understand like you did or read or write. And for just having that ability now, every once in a while, I'm like, oh, I'm, so, I'm just so <laughs> grateful to be here and to be talking to you and to understand what you're saying. Um, so thank you, actually, for uh, the work that you do, because you are a big part of making sure that that was successful and that that was preserved oh, for me and for course. a lot of other patients it's, here. It's, uh, you know, it's it's fun to do and it's good <laughs> if it helps people. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for coming in sure. for the first ever in-person Language Neuroscience <laughs> podcast. It's been really great talking with you again. Yeah, you too. Thank you. All right. Take care. That's it for episode 22. Thank you to Olivia for taking the time to talk with me and share her story. I hope you'll consider donating to the Brain Cancer Patient Assistance Fund that Olivia established. The URL is not pithy, so I'm going to link it in the show notes and on the podcast website at langneurosci.org podcast. I've also linked papers from my lab describing our pre-surgical mapping protocol, as well as our papers on the incidence of aphasias after resective surgery. I'd like to thank Marcia Pettit for transcribing this episode and the journal Neurobiology of Language for supporting transcription. Thank you all for listening. Bye for now.